Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, microalgae cause cigaterra and John August continues the copyright week celebration. But first up, here's the news. Glow or gas? The Guardian has a story by Nigel Irwin that presents a moral dilemma. Would you rather see day-old baby chickens killed or eat genetically modified green glowing eggs that deal with the reasons for the cruelty? Around the world, egg-laying chickens have been bred to be good layers, but not as cheap to raise for meat as other specially bred types of chicken. Male layer chickens can't lay eggs and are more expensive to feed for meat so they're not wanted. There's currently no way to determine the sex of chickens before they hatch. To save on costs, egg producers wait for the eggs to hatch, and if the chicken is male, they gas it to death or quickly grind it to death. Blech. There are only a few ways to prevent this cruelty. We could regulate against animal cruelty, and it'll stop. The industry has successfully lobbied to stop this happening there's a lot of money involved. Or we could develop a chicken that's good for meat and laying eggs. Or we have Nigel Irwin's solution. We genetically engineer egg-laying chickens with jellyfish protein so that eggs with female chickens inside glow green under ultraviolet light. That way you can sort the eggs and dispose of males when the eggs are only just starting to incubate. No gassing, and no grinding to death. The male chicks are just aborted. If you choose to eat eggs, which would you choose? Eggs genetically engineered to glow under UV light, or eggs produced in a system that right now kills day-old male baby chickens to save money? The research is being carried out by Charles Sturt University in Bathurst, working with a group in the United States Department of Agriculture. Personally, if the jellyfish protein turns out to be safe to eat, I don't mind glowing in the dark in the ultraviolet at nightclubs. But I'd much rather we regulated against cruelty to animals. A drug for chronic fatigue syndrome. A new treatment is being trialled for chronic fatigue syndrome by K-Pax Pharmaceuticals in the United States. Their working theory is that chronic fatigue syndrome involves a problem with the way mitochondria in body cells convert food into energy. To test this, KPAX is setting up 12-week trials of a low-dose methylphenidate drug used for attention deficit disorder and narcolepsy, generic Ritalin, along with a carefully selected nutritional supplement. They aim for the supplement to provide the fuel the mitochondria need to effectively convert food into cellular energy. And the Ritalin will provide the spark. The trial will use doses of about a third of the drug prescribed for attention deficit disorder. 
Chronic fatigue syndrome has a large number of symptoms, but the most debilitating are poor stamina, extreme exhaustion after exertion, and problems with alertness, concentration, and memory, also known as brain fog. Micronutrients, such as the KPAC CFS supplements, have been tried to support normal mitochondria conversion of food into energy in people with chronic fatigue syndrome unsuccessfully before, but never in conjunction with a stimulant. The micronutrient supplement in the trial contains acetyl-L-carnitine, alpha-lipoic acid, N-acetylcysteine, L-taurine, B vitamins, and minerals. KPAX have already conducted a trial with low-dose generic Ritalin in their CFS nutrient formula, where many patients reported rapid and sustained reduction in fatigue, as well as improvement in concentration. This new trial is the next phase, confirming the results. In order to be diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome, doctors are looking for severe chronic exhaustion over six months that isn't caused by other illness, medication, exercise or work, the exhaustion significantly interferes with the usual daily activities or work, and that you've had four or more of the following symptoms continuously for at least six months. Tiredness following exercise or exertion that lasts more than 24 hours, unrefreshing sleep, problems with short-term memory or concentration, muscle pain, pain in the joints without swelling or redness, headaches of a new type, pattern or severity, recurring sore throats, tender glands in the neck or armpits. Nobody knows what causes chronic fatigue syndrome. Some researchers focus on the fact that a very large number of people get it after a prolonged bout of glandular fever, Epstein-Barr virus or cytomegalovirus, although those people no longer have any virus left in their blood so they no longer have an active infection. The symptoms are very similar to ciguatera, so some researchers suspect there's a link to the tropical fish poison. There's currently no medical treatment for chronic fatigue syndrome other than treating the symptoms and avoiding the triggers for flare-ups. How badly people suffer from chronic fatigue syndrome varies a lot. Some sufferers struggle to continue in full-time work, while some must use a wheelchair. KPAX are looking for 120 people suffering chronic fatigue syndrome in the United States who'd like to be part of their double-blind placebo-controlled trial. You get the medication and CFS micronutrient supplements and $50 compensation every time you visit their clinics in Palo Alto, Manhattan, Salt Lake City and Fort Lauderdale. You can contact KPAX Pharmaceuticals to join the 12-week trial at thesynergytrial.org. They expect to publish the results by the end of 2014. KPAX are keen to be the first pharmaceutical company to sell a Food and Drug Administration approved treatment for chronic fatigue syndrome. You can find out more about the Californian company at kpaxpharmaceuticals.com. I'm Ian Wolfe. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Where is Ciguatera? Shauna Murray is an Associate Professor and ARC Fellow at the University of Technology, Sydney, in the Climate Change Cluster C3 Centre, where she researches microalgae that produce toxins that are eaten by fish and could end up on your dinner plate, giving you an illness like ciguatera. Ciguatera fish poisoning can cause major problems with circulation, digestion, breathing, and the nervous system. 
The toxins don't hurt the fish or the fish that eat the fish, only fish-eating mammals like us. I contracted ciguatera from eating seafood in Sydney, so I have a personal interest. Shauna's work includes identifying where the microalgae are growing so that fishes can be warned not to take any seafood from those areas and prevent the spread of the illness. So one part of my work for the past probably about 15 years has been to research microalgae that produce toxins. So there's quite a number of species that produce toxins and ciguatera toxins is one of the major groups of toxins produced by principally species of a genus called Gambia discus. So there's about 12 species in that genus and they're found throughout the world and including in Australia and also in the Pacific and uh, Indian and Caribbean. What sort of organisms are they? They're uh, marine microalgae, meaning they're single cells, but they're eukaryotes. So that's a difference between, there's a principal difference in biology between bacteria, which are prokaryotes, and cells like animals and plants, which are eukaryotes. And dinoflagellates, including Gambidiscus, which is the genus that causes ciguatera, are eukaryotes, similar to us. So they're quite complex cells. They have uh, a separate nucleus and they have very, very large genomes, much larger, in fact, than the human genome. So there's a lot of unusual features that dinoflagellates can do. For example, they can produce a lot of different types of secondary metabolites, meaning other types of compounds that for example, toxins, and this is, this is one of the major ones that we're talking about today. And what sort of environment do they grow in? They're uh, benthic, which means they attach to surfaces in the marine habitat. So with things like the surface of marine macroalgae, so the brown kelps, that kind of thing, also to the surface of dead corals. And that's quite an interesting phenomenon because that's thought to be perhaps one of the reasons why there's been an increase in gambidiscus abundance in certain areas after coral reefs have been destroyed and there's been more dead coral in the environment. And what's the life cycle of these microalgae? Um, <laughs> no one knows exactly their life cycle because the sexual stage has not yet been identified if it exists. No one knows exactly what the life cycle is because we haven't identified the sexual stages. But we do know that in general they divide by mitosis, meaning they're haploid and they're just dividing in the environment. Once every couple of days they'll divide. And when you're trying to detect them in the water, how do you do that? There are a number of different ways. The kind of standard traditional way would be to take a sample through the water, for example, with a net over the top of some macroalgae or simply take a macroalgal sample and shake it, take the water sample and then use some sort of fixative to preserve the sample and then look at it under a microscope. And if you've got the skills and the experience, you can identify the cells from their, their shapes and size and characteristic patterns and things like that. So that's one way. The kinds of ways we've been working on have been uh, genetic methods to identify them. So they also have unique gene sequences in, in certain genes, for example, ribosomal RNA genes, which are commonly used in different animals 
and plants and other organisms as kind of barcoding genes. And what about the toxins? So the toxins can be detected in a number of different ways. The probably the most accurate way would be using LCMS, which is uh, liquid chromatography mass spectrometry, which is a, a form of chemistry. LCMS is the standard method for detection, but to be able to detect the particular types of toxins, you need a good set of uh, standards to compare the composition that you might find in whatever sample you have to what the composition is that would be expected from, for example, this particular type of uh, ciguatoxin, so this particular analogue of ciguatoxin. And that's been a particular problem with ciguatera fish poisoning because there's a very limited supply in the world of these kinds of standards. There are very few groups that are able to have enough material in order to be able to make reference standards that they can then supply to diagnostic laboratories around the world. So it's been a problem. There are not many places in the world where ciguatoxins can be identified. So there have been another number of other tests developed, for example, cell-based assays, and there are scientists in Australia working on that, on that um, especially at the University of Queensland, and they're developing new cell-based assays that avoid the need to use LCMS and have these particular reference standards. And how would a cell-based assay work? Basically, antibodies are developed that react specifically to the toxins. So are you saying that basically they develop some ciguatera-sensitive antibodies and then they add a substance to the cells and look for a change? Exactly, yeah. So they're um, they're basically detecting changes that are indicative of those particular types of ciguatoxins, but they can't say for certain that that's what they have. And I believe there's a test to actually test fish for the toxins uh, from the University of Hawaii. Do you know about that? Yeah, this is yeah, it's an ELISA-based test, but the reports I've heard about the success of that have been mixed, so I'm not exactly sure if it's still on the market, actually. What, maybe too many false positives? Yeah, and basically there are too many other things that can interact um, and cause similar effects. Do we know the prevalence of ciguatera fish poisoning in Australia? Roughly. It's, it's very much underreported everywhere in the world, but including in Australia. So we do know of, I think it's about 1,600 cases over the last 20 years. So these are the cases that have been confirmed, so the ones that have been reported to health authorities. So that's not to say that they're not many, many other cases that have either undiagnosed or unreported. So, and that includes two deaths, both of them in Queensland, and there's some fairly comprehensive information about those case histories that it's in the literature. Basically, our research has shown us that it, we consider ciguatera to be a neglected tropical disease, meaning that it's a, a major problem in many areas, particularly developing countries in the Pacific, and that it's been neglected in the sense that very little research has been done on it considering the number of sufferers. So we think that it's something that could benefit from increasing networks of people who are able to collaborate on large-scale projects, 
increasing funding and uh, basically an increased emphasis on different factors including the toxicology, the genetics, the chemistry and, and the physiology and the health related aspects. What's next for your research? What's in the future? Well, as you'll no doubt hear, <laughs> we're very interested in the genetic aspects of ciguatera fish poisoning. So in terms of detection, we're very interested in the genomes of the organisms that potentially produce ciguatoxins and in looking at the different genetic factors that might be responsible and trying to find some indicative sequences that we might be able to use in the future. Gurjit Singh Kohli is a research fellow studying the genes of the microalgae that cause ciguatera with both Shauna at the University of Technology, Sydney, and Brett Nylon at University of New South Wales. He has recently handed in his PhD thesis. I asked him why is it so difficult to make a test kit that detects the toxins that cause ciguatera. Why it is so difficult to make any of these test kits or maybe even a blood test which is responsible which might be able to detect uh, ciguatoxins or any kind of toxins which are produced by this organism which can cause ciguatera is because we are talking to detect something which is present in nanograms of amounts of quantities and when it comes to that small amount of quantities it is very hard to detect these things especially conventionally it is quite easy to make analyze our test kit or to uh, design antibodies which uh, against uh, these antigens but because it's present in such low amounts uh, and it can cause so much harm in such low amounts it's really difficult to make that sensitive kind of an assay to detect these toxins and that's why you need LCMS like liquid chromatography mass spectrometry because we're trying to detect like really like low amounts and that's the only reason why we have to go and use such a expensive technology to actually basically detect these things and not for example use something which has been used for ages. Can you briefly tell me how the LCMS works with the to detect the toxin because is it looking at the atoms it does so it basically so the toxin is quite a big molecule so it breaks the molecule into special types of little molecules and then it detects these little molecules and based on the specific mass of these little molecules it identifies or we can look at the output the machine gives us and we can identify saying all right this is the atom we were looking at this is the mass of the atom we were looking at and we have found it so it is quite sensitive in that terms because there would be hopefully there would be nothing in that sample which has this exact um, mass that's the basic principle for any kind of spectrometry Mass, or like liquid chromatography mass spectrometry. Well, Gurdjit and Shauna, thank you very much. That was Associate Professor Shauna Murray and Research Fellow Gurdjit Singh Kohli, studying the microalgae that make the toxins that cause ciguatera. Shauna recently wrote an article about ciguatera for theconversation.edu.au. I'll put links to her and Gurdjit's work in the show notes for this episode on diffusionradio.com. And now John August celebrates Copyright Week with some political science. 
by reviewing some of the history that David Bolley has pieced together about property and the commons and how modern developments such as the internet and open source can be looked upon as a new commons. So here's John August's view of the many issues around intellectual property, patents, digital rights management, copyright, and the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement. Property in land is something we're supposed to own and control regardless of others. The Australian film The Castle captures this idea. Still, property ownership does come with obligations. If something leaks out of our property, we're liable for it. But legally speaking, property ownership does not have a clear and untarnished history. Private property has been in tension with common property, or the commons, for much of history. This has been researched in depth by David Bollier, a US activist, author and founder of the Common Strategies Group. The UK had its Enclosures Act, which took common land and gave it to individuals. One comment on this was that it gave individuals the incentives to improve otherwise unproductive land, like swampland, assuming you're not concerned about the environment of the swamp in the first place. However, another story is that it meant denying commoners their, till then, existing rights to sustain themselves on the land, and they were dispossessed. Bollier talks about how the notions of land ownership conflicted with prior social networks and understandings. A poem from around 1764, noted in Bollier's book Silent Theft, captures the sentiment. They hang the man and flog the woman, that steal the goose from off the common. But let the greater villain loose, that steals the common from the goose. The law demands that we atone when we take things we do not own, but leaves the lords and ladies fine who take things that are yours and mine. The poor and wretched don't escape if they conspire the law to break. This must be so, but they endure those who conspire to make the law. The law locks up the man or woman who steals the goose from off the common, and geese will steal a common lack till they go and steal it back. Bollier sees enclosures as not just turning common land into private property, but also taking concepts and ideas which were public and turning them into something private. For example, a set of words may be words that all of us can use, but as a trademark, only those firms that own the words can use them. They have been enclosed and taken from the public domain. Bollier also sees the commons in recent technological developments. He sees the internet and open source technology such as Linux as examples of a collaborative common, a pool of information from, from which all can drink freely without restriction, where nobody privately owns what is generated. He also notes how new business models have developed which mean profits can be made by accessing the commons, but never through appropriating as private property what is in the commons. Some will see the notion of property as complete nonsense. Rather than going this far, I see the legal recognition of many forms of property as being not so much the recognition of some inviolate right to control what you have, but rather a recognition that provides incentives so you apply yourself in a way that benefits the rest of the world. This vital connection has been lost over time. It's apparent in the Copyright Term Extension Act of 1998, which extended copyright terms in the United States to the life of the author plus 50 years, or 75 years for a work of corporate authorship. Copyright is justified in it providing creators with an incentive to create works that we will all benefit from, because they have the ability to gain monopoly profits for a period. However, it is difficult to believe that your estate continuing to benefit for a few extra decades after you pass away would provide an additional incentive for you to currently engage in more creative activity. This extension was a result of lobbying by corporate interests to maintain their profits, rather than providing incentives which meant a net benefit for everyone. 
In fact, it was justified through a desire to keep the money in the US rather than let the benefits flow overseas, which overlooked the whole point of copyright, not to mention that corporations would disproportionately benefit. The Act is known derisively as the Mickey Mouse Protection Act, and it is something the US would like included in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or the TPP. It does seem the TPP has so far focused on trade and the ability of nations to protect their assets and investments, rather than seeing intellectual property as providing incentives for activities that everyone benefits from. You wouldn't be blamed for thinking that the incentive for international trade and investment trumps all other incentives, which are also important parts of the promise of capitalism. You wouldn't steal a handbag. You wouldn't steal a car. You wouldn't steal a baby. You wouldn't shoot a policeman and then steal his helmet. You wouldn't go to the toilet in his helmet and then send it to the policeman's grieving widow and then steal it again. Downloading films is stealing. If you do it, you will face the consequences. There's also the first sale doctrine, the idea that you can sell, rent or otherwise deal with a book or other item after it's been sold to you. This is being undermined by digital rights management, also derisively known as digital restrictions management, which makes it impossible to directly copy material. Of course, it is easier to make a digital copy than it is a book, and even a photocopy would never have the same bound feel as the original. Still, it was possible to copy part of a book in fair dealing if you did not profit from it. That's cut out by DRM. Further, DRM has segmented the global market, much as there are other pushes towards globalisation when it suits other corporate interests. This means you cannot effectively travel internationally and conveniently play your collection of DVDs or whatever. However, the DRM itself, by itself does not violate the first sale doctrine. It is sold once to one buyer. You may only be able to play it once and you may be unable to sell it on. However, if it were enforced, the DRM license meant that you could read or play a file multiple times and could sell it on. Then you could have a secondary market of DRMs being traded to allow the playing of a file by a succession of individuals, selling the DRMs amongst them. Something like how a firm issues shares, which are then traded amongst the shareholders. So DRMs do not by themselves violate the first sale doctrine, but they certainly make it easier. Of course, this is about direct copying of the file. You could always video a screen or record audio from a speaker. Yes, there's noise, but if you repeat the pro process multiple times, you can average it out and reduce the noise. It's a nuisance, but it can be done. If you only play the file once per purchase, this would mean that after you've paid for perhaps 10 plays, you would be able to average out your very own good copy. The point is that, whatever the technological barriers, they can only make it harder to make a good copy. They cannot make it impossible. Thank you, John. You can hear more of this talk in future episodes. Find out more at eff.org slash copyrightweek and johnaugus.com.au. The copyright warning was from the IT crowd. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement, and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like our Facebook page, Diffusion Science Radio, and leave a comment. 
Contributing to the show this week was John August. I produced Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network and 2HHH in Hornsby, Karingai. Diffusion is syndicated on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.